morning. My name is Michael McCusker. According to Old Testament biblical lore, humanity's parental couple, Eve and Adam, made their sudden appearance in the Garden of Eden on this upcoming Saturday's date of 28 October in the year 400 B.C. My mother Josephine's birth date was a day earlier and a few millennia later, 27 October 1912, the year Thomas Woodrow Wilson was elected president of the USA and the unsinkable HMS Titanic sank. I start today's program with my mother's 50th birthday, which was a true world shaker. I call it our hair trigger world, and I wrote it. 61 years ago, my now deceased mother's birthday, old Mother Earth was nearly murdered by a few of her children. That was the night the now infamous Cuban Missile Crisis reached a nearly insurmountable crucible moment when everyone involved thought the only option left was pushing the doomsday button. That Saturday night of October 27, 1962, my mother Josephine's 50th birthday, is yet considered the worst moment of the Cold War between the USA and the USSR, the Union of Socialist Soviet Russia. It is now contemplated that our planet and species were not as close to oblivion as the participants thought, and a number of other brushes with oblivion occurred afterward until the USSR essentially self-destructed at the end of both the 20th century and second millennium. Many probably unknown others from well-publicized systems failures, in particular a few startling instances of computer malfunctions, averted breathtakingly close to the point of no return when fleets of nuclear weapons would be sent aloft. The Soviet Union self-destructed politically prior to mutual devastation, though current-day Russian warlord Vladimir Putin has recently threatened nuclear blackmail as a consequence of his sordid, invasive war with Ukraine, once a part of greater Russia. The Cuban crisis of 1962 started when the U.S. discovered Russian nuclear missiles being emplaced in Cuba, which had recently removed itself from America's orbit the first successful communist revolt in the Western Hemisphere. Both Fidel Castro, the successful Cuban communist revolutionary, and Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev thought the U.S. was about to invade the island unless the missiles were immediately removed. Contrarily, the American president, John Kennedy, denied any such intent but American armed forces sponsored the ill-fated Bay of Pigs fiasco the previous year to overthrow Castro, and CIA spooks were essentially responsible for several assassination schemes, in particular 
exploding cigar scenarios, which became notorious. The American response to the Russian missiles in Cuba was ultimately simple and successful. It enacted a naval blockade around the island and threatened to sink any Russian vessel exporting nuclear missiles into Cuba. The Cuban Missile Crisis has long been studied as an example of nuclear brinkmanship, although its lessons are most likely obsolete in this succeeding millennium. The long-standing American myth is that the Soviet Union backed down from the brink of extinction and removed its missiles from Cuba in exchange for the U.S. dismantling its already obsolete, at the time, missiles from Turkey near its Russian border. The reality is somewhat more excruciating. Both Russia and the USA blinked at the moment of Armageddon. Armageddon is, of course, the place for the last battle at the end of the world, located in the Middle East of biblical prophecy. Almost all religions prophesize an end-of-the-world genocide, a final battle that ends human life in toto. All of human history absurdly propels us to the savage frontier of our most primitive fears. We as a species are as much assaulted by our psychological savagery as were the civilizations of antiquity. From this grows a general sense of helplessness to reverse the rampant nuclear technology, that it is God's will and irreversible, even though it is human invention. The military castes are as irresponsible. They speak of themselves as protectors of the peace, but cannot trust each other and essentially paralyze themselves to any other worldview except the ultimate battle, which, after all, is the shrine of their profession. The overwhelming fortunes made by arms builders overwhelms whatever qualms for producing weapons that might render humanity extinct. Thousands of private companies produce nuclear warheads, the systems for transporting, arming, and launching the weapons. Nuclear arms production works a double liability. It erodes what remains of our tottering constitutional democracy and holds its citizenry hostage to the fears and oppressive secrecy it invokes. And it drains hundreds of billions of taxpayers' dollars into the private fortunes of munitions makers. The rubric of national security places them beyond public scrutiny and accountability, and their wealth, provided by an increasingly disenfranchised citizenry, gives them tremendous political power, which is usually conservative and anti-democratic in nature. A theory gaining respect is that dinosaurs, the great thunder lizards who lived on Earth hundreds of times longer than humanity, might have perished wholesale from a collision of a large outer space rock that collided with Earth on or about the Yucatan Peninsula. 
our extinction might at least be as dramatic if we continue as we are. The difference is that we seem to have taken charge of our own evolution. We can murder our old mother or let her live a while longer. We cannot uninvent nuclear weapons. The knowledge of them is with us for as long as the human species defies its self-centered handicaps and dwells in the galaxy. If we are not smart enough to contain our nuclear goblin, our ruined cities will leave very little trace eventually that we once briefly and foolishly ruled Earth. And that was, again, something I wrote. And it is more or less an update rewrite of an original rant in the North Coast Times Eagle, which I was editor-publisher, and I called it Our Hair Trigger World. And now, an article in the New York Times by Adam Liptick. Supreme Court lifts limits for now on Biden officials' contacts with tech platforms. The Supreme Court on this past Friday allowed Biden administration officials to continue to contact social media platforms to combat what the officials say is misinformation, pausing a sweeping ruling from a federal appeals court that had severely limited such interactions. The justices also agreed to hear the administration's appeal in the case, setting the stage for a major test of the role of the First Amendment in the Internet era, one that will require the court to consider when government efforts to limit the spread of misinformation amount to censorship of constitutionally protected speech. Three justices dissented from the court's decision to lift the restrictions on administration officials while the case moves forward. Government censorship of private speech is antiethical to our democratic form of government, and therefore today's decision is highly disturbing, Justice Samuel A. Alito, Jr. wrote, joined by Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil M. Gorsuch. Justice Alito criticized the majority for acting, quote, without undertaking a full review of the record and without any explanation, unquote, and allowing the administration to continue its interactions until the court finally rules, again, a quote, an event that may not occur until late in the spring of next year, unquote, and that is by Alito. Alito added, at this time in the history of our country, what the court has done, I fear, will be seen as some as giving the government a green light to use heavy-handed tactics to skew the presentation of views on the medium that increasingly dominates this dissemination of news. That is most unfortunate. In asking the Supreme Court to act, Solicitor General Elizabeth B. Freelogger said the government was entitled to express its views and to try to persuade others to take action. A central dimension of presidential power is the use of the office's bully pulpit 
to seek to persuade Americans and American companies to act in ways that the president believes would advance the public interest, she wrote. In response, the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana, both Republicans, along with people who said their speech had been censored, wrote that the administration had crossed a constitutional line. The bully pulpit, they wrote, is not a pulpit to bully. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled last month that officials from the White House, the Surgeon's General Office, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the FBI had most likely violated the First Amendment in their bid to persuade companies to remove posts about the coronavirus pandemic, claims of election fraud, and Hunter Biden's laptop computer. The panel, in an unsigned opinion, said the officials had become excessively entangled with the platforms or used threats to spur them to act. The panel entered an injunction forbidding many officials to coerce or significantly encourage social media companies to remove content protected by the First Amendment. Ms. Preloger wrote that the panel had made a fundamental error as the platforms were private entities that ultimately made independent decisions about what to delete. It is undisputed that the content moderation decisions at issue in this case were made by private social media companies such as Facebook and YouTube, Ms. Prelegger wrote. The plaintiffs responded that the companies had succumbed to lengthy and unlawful pressure. They did not dispute that the platforms were entitled to make independent decisions about what to feature on their sites, but they said the conduct of government officials in urging them to take down asserted misinformation amounted to censorship that violated the First Amendment. The case is one of several presenting questions about the intersection of free speech and technology on the court's docket. The court recently agreed to hear appeals on whether the Constitution allows Florida and Texas to prevent large social media companies from removing posts based on the views they express. And the court will hear arguments this month on whether elected officials had violated the First Amendment when they blocked people from their social media accounts. The new case concerned a preliminary injunction initially entered by Judge Terry A. Doughty of the Federal District Court for the Western District of Louisiana. Judge Doughty, who was appointed by President Donald J. Trump, said the lawsuit described what could be, quote, the most massive attack against free speech in United States history, unquote. He issued a sweeping 10-part injunction. The appeals court narrowed it substantially, removing some officials, vacating nine of its provisions, and modifying the remaining one. Judge Doughty had prohibited officials from threatening, pressuring, or coercing social media companies in any manner to remove, delete, suppress, or reduce posted contents of postings containing protected free speech. 
The appeals court panel wrote that those terms could also capture otherwise legal speech. The panel's revised injunction said officials shall take no actions, formal or informal, directly or indirectly, to coerce or significantly encourage social media companies to remove, delete, suppress, or reduce, including through altering their algorithms, posted social media content containing protected free speech. Summarizing its conclusion, the panel wrote, Ultimately, we find the district court did not err in determining that several officials, namely the White House, the Surgeon General, the CDC, and the FBI, likely coerced or significantly encouraged social media platforms to moderate content, rendering those decisions state actions. In doing so, the officials likely violated the First Amendment. And that was Supreme Court lifts limits for now on Biden officials' contacts with tech platforms. And it was written by Adam Liptak for the New York Times. And now, are you ready? Yes, I am ready. Get some paper out of the way here. So. <laughs> <clears throat> and now, from the Guardian newspaper. Growing number of countries consider making ecocide a crime by Isabella Kaminsky. A growing number of countries are considering introducing laws to make ecocide a crime. Mexico is the latest country where politicians are seeking to deter environmental damage and to get justice for its victims by criminalizing it. Karina Marlin Barron Perales, Congresswoman for Nuevo Leon, has submitted a bill to the Mexican Congress introducing a new crime of ecocide. While damaging the environment is already a civil offense in most countries, recognition of ecocide elevates the most egregious cases to a crime with accompanying penalties. The new Mexican bill looks to criminalize, quote, any unlawful or wanton act committed with the knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment, unquote. If passed, anyone found guilty of ecocide could be jailed for up to 15 years and fined as much as 1,500 pesos a day. The Mexican bill uses a definition of ecocide developed by an international panel of legal experts in 2021. The definition was mainly intended to be adopted by the International Criminal Court through an amendment to the Rome Statute, the key goal of the Stop Ecocide Foundation, but is now also being used for national-level legislation. Only a few states around the world have criminalized ecocide, including Vietnam, Ukraine, and Russia. Ukraine's public prosecutor is already investigating a possible case of ecocide against Russia for breaching the Nova Kakovaka Dam. 
France became the first EU country to put ecocide into law in 2021, although the wording is not as strong as campaigners had hoped for. A test case involving carcinogenic chemicals is currently in the courts. Similar draft laws have been submitted in other countries, including the Netherlands. Belgium is poised to finalize its own version of the law, while the Catalan parliament is leading efforts to criminalize ecocide within the wider Spanish penal code. In Scotland, Labour MSP Monica Lennon, again, in Scotland, Labour MSP Monica Lennon is trying to introduce an ecocide bill and will launch a public consultation on the matter. In, again, in Brazil, where deforestation of the Amazon rainforest has been repeatedly described as a crime, political party PSOL put forward an ecocide bill to Congress in June. Rodrigo Iedo, director of Stop Ecocide Americas and a member of the panel that developed the ecocide definition, said Brazil's was the first bill of its kind in Latin America to formally enter a national legislative chamber. Other countries in the region, including Argentina and Chile, have also signaled a growing interest. Yedo stressed that all these draft laws still require parliamentary approval and few have the support of the governing party. But it is important that people are speaking about it and that some new bills are coming up, he said. During an during an get it right during an Icelandic parliamentary inquiry earlier this year into whether the country should recognize ecocide, the Prime Minister, Katrin Jacobsdotter, told MPs that her government was following work on an international legal framework on ecocide very closely, quote-unquote. Although it would be complicated to implement, another quote, she said it was only a matter of time before this issue becomes the biggest issue in the human rights arena, quote, unquote. In January, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe adopted a resolution calling on member states to update their laws to codify a crime of ecocide. Two months later, the European Parliament supported the inclusion of ecocide-level crimes into the EU's revised Environmental Crimes Directive. If this passes unscathed through the EU's full legislative process, then member states will be required to make ecocide a crime through national law. This is Michael McCusker. Joanne Rideout tenaciously persists as this program's engineer. It might be interesting to note that on October 23rd, 1813, during the War of 1812, Americans operating the Pacific Fur Company trading post at our beloved first city in the American West, Astoria, Oregon, 
sold out to their financial, political, and wartime rivals, the British Northwest Company, rather than surrender to English soldiers. And Oregon's famously infamous John Reed, America's first communist, was born October 22, 1887, 76 years earlier than my younger brother Bill, whose 80th birthday was on the same date this past Sunday. Mark Twain noted that life would be infinitely more fair if it started at 80 and worked back to about 18 and younger. Walter Lippmann said of John Reed, John Reed is the only fellow I know that gets himself pursued by men with revolvers, who is always, once more, just about to ruin himself. Oregon's unofficial poet laureate, Walt Curtis, who wrote a biographical memoir of John Reed that was published in the North Coast Times Eagle in October, November 1987, called him the father of modern journalism, the most notorious charismatic literary figure of the 20th century. Curtis quoted from a poem of Reed's, Fisherman putting out from Astoria in the foggy dawn, lean cowboys from Burns, stringy old prospectors, bums riding the rods, wobbly singing their defiant songs, I know ye Americans. Reed's most famous book, just before his death in 1920, of Typhus, was Ten Days That Shook the World, a definitive eyewitness account of Russia's Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. He is buried in the Kremlin Wall. Many might disagree, but John Reed continues to be history's most famous and notable Oregonian. You've been listening to A Story Told on KMUN, featuring Michael McCusker, journalist, activist, former firefighter, and Vietnam veteran. Michael has been sharing essays and poetry on A Story Told for decades on KMUN. For 30 years, he published the North Coast Times Eagle newspaper out of his home in Astoria, Oregon. Michael currently shares his work and the works of other authors from his home on the Central Oregon coast. Join us here next week for A Story Told.